Since we're talking today about the law of Moses, the written code, as, as the ESV translates it there, I, I t- took the time to look through, because I've heard some things about contracts, about especially Hollywood and, and entertainment-type contracts. And while I was looking this up, this is actual real language from a real contract that somebody wrote and then signed uh, between one Hollywood studio and another production company. And this is the quote that it says. That these rights shall apply in any media, whether now known or hereafter devised, or in any form, whether now known or hereafter devised, an unlimited number of times throughout the universe and forever. (laughs) That's real. Somebody actually signed that. Throughout the universe and forever. So apparently if we colonize some other planets, (laughs) they will still have the rights to that footage. And uh, should that corporation, that studio, last for a billion million years, it will still own the rights. And that, that's pretty extensive, if you ask me. I, I wonder exactly if there was ever any, like, out that somebody was concerned about. Like, this only applies on planet Earth. Like, if, you got to wonder. But I, we read that, and it, it seems kind of silly, but this is an important question for us to answer as Christians. When you talk about the written code, the law, the covenant of Moses that was given in the Old Testament, the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and so on, is that the kind of authority that that law was intended to have over us? An unlimited number of times throughout the universe and forever? Because it's a pretty important thing if it is. Because that law is pretty severe. And this is one of the most important concerns of the New Testament. And it it addresses it in almost every book of your New Testament, which is, should we, as Christians, keep the law of Moses? And this was especially relevant because almost immediately in the early church, as early as Acts chapter 10, God started bringing Gentiles into the church. Folks that didn't grow up with the law. Now, early on, it was all Jewish Christians. And that's their culture. They're going to keep the law because that's how they were raised. That's how they grew up. They were comfortable with it. They liked it. They were proud of it. But now all of a sudden, we've got guys like Cornelius, the Roman centurion. We've got men like the Ethiopian eunuch coming into the church. We've got other folks from all around the Roman Empire getting saved. And they're equally proud to be Roman as they were to be Jewish. So how do you handle this? And this is one of the biggest concerns, as I said, of the New Testament. And I'm not going to keep you waiting. I'm I'm just going to go ahead and spoil it for you. However you want to nuance this question or nuance your answer to make sure that you don't go overboard, one of the most clear teachings of the New Testament is that Christians do not have to keep the law of Moses. I'm just going to answer that right there. There can be all kinds of things that we bring in, and I'll bring in some of those reminders as well, but you don't keep the law. You are not under the law. In fact, we just read that you are dead to the law. And we have to at least get that big rock in place first, that cornerstone, before we start building the rest of the foundation of this doctrine. And the reason this gets tricky is because we then ask the question, all right, if I don't have to keep the law of Moses, what is the Christian standard for morality? Do you understand me? If we say, okay, but the law said thou shalt not kill. Does that mean it's cool to kill people now? 
Um, I get the things where it's like you don't have to wear tassels on your robes, but it also said, you know, honor your father and mother. I mean, isn't that supposed to be kept? So we have this, this confusion. And uncertainty around this question causes us to do a couple things. Number one, we can take refuge in the rules. And we feel like, okay, well, if it's not those rules, which of the rules do I have to keep? Maybe I need to make a new set of rules. And we, we construct this whole other system of obedience that we have to keep. Or we say, hooray, I'm not under the law. That means I can do whatever I want. And I'm not going to get too far into that issue because we looked at that over the last couple of weeks. That not being under the law does not mean that you don't have to be righteous. But I want to address that question that what, what rules am I supposed to follow then? Does that mean I can just do whatever I want? That can't be right. So which ones do I have to follow? These are the kind of questions we ask ourselves. This is new covenant living that we're going to look at today. New covenant. It's a better way than following the written code. Or literally the word there is the letter. But following the new covenant and that system of morality, if you want to put it that way, so sterile and clinical. But really, the, to, to follow the new covenant is better because it keeps you from being legalistic and it also keeps you from being licentious. That word comes from the word license, which means I've got a license to do whatever I want. Licentious. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 6 says that God has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Already we can see there's a personal dimension to this, isn't there? The Holy Spirit of God. So let's look at this. Let's look at these first three verses where Paul lays down the basic principle that he's then going to apply to us as Christians in verses 4 through 6. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies... She's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now he begins in verse 1 by saying, I'm speaking to those who know the law. He's going to address this because, as we've seen, Paul has made several very strong statements about the law already in the book of Romans. And they have, in a sense, built on one another. And chapter 6 was one answer to certain objections that people had about the law. And chapter 7 is going to continue that process. Let's look at some of these strong statements that Paul has made about the law in Romans so far. In chapter 2, verse 13, he says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So the first strong thing he said was, Having the law is not enough. That was huge. That was back in the condemnation section. I don't think just because you've got the law means that it's enough. So having the law is not enough. Chapter 3, verse 21, he said, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Now the point he's making there is that salvation is not the law. He's saying we're not, they're not opposed to each other. It testifies to salvation, but that it's come apart from the law. That there's a difference between being saved and keeping the law. This was radical for the Jews at the time. Chapter 3, verse 28. He said, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So there he goes all the way and says it. Salvation comes apart from the law. You do not have to have or keep the law to be saved. Another radical statement. 
chapter 4, verse 14 says, If the adherents of the law are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. So he's saying if you only get saved by keeping the law, you've nullified the promise of God that he made to Abraham. Pitting two things against each other that the Jewish Christians in his audience would never have thought to do. The point is that law is actually a hindrance to salvation. So we've gone from saying that it's separate from salvation. He's saying, now he's saying law is a hindrance to being saved. Chapter 5, verse 20, he said, The law came to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. He just said in chapter 5, verse 20, law increases sin. So not only is it, is it opposed and a hindrance to salvation, it does the opposite. Keeping the law makes you more sinful. And then in chapter 6, verse 14, which we just read not long ago, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. You might underline that verse. You are not under law. So he goes all the way in chapter 6, verse 14, building up to that conclusion. Because remember, he's, he's speaking, especially in the early church, primarily to Jewish Christians in the synagogues and everywhere else. And he's got to let them know gently, it's not about the law. You are not under law, but under grace. And I ought to make very clear in passing here, when Paul, especially in Romans, talks about the law, it really should be with a capital L. We're not just talking about any kind of law here. We're talking specifically about the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, the Torah, right? What God gave to Moses and was passed down through the generations. This is not just some generic rule, although Romans 2 did say that, that any generic law can serve the function of the law of Moses. But he's making a very strong salvation history statement here. Now, of course, after saying you're not under the law, the immediate question then is, well, so what? You can just do whatever you want? And that's what chapter 6 was all about. That being lawless is not the same thing as being lawless. I do not have the law of Moses. That doesn't mean that I can sin and do whatever I want. But still, there are questions. So here he addresses his brothers in verse 1. Now, this is probably Christians. We do tend to assume that when Paul says brothers, he means Christians. But I do think it's interesting that he says, do you not know, brothers, I'm speaking to those who know the law. That Paul very often, when he refers to his brothers, he's speaking to his brothers according to the flesh, to his Jewish brothers. I'm inclined to think that's who he's addressing here, although it doesn't really affect how you interpret this passage. But I can really see Paul turning in Romans 7 to his Jewish brothers in the faith and saying, listen, I know this is hard for you. I know this is really difficult for you to accept. But he's going to prove from the law that you don't need the law anymore. And he lays out a very general principle here. And this is basic, and really you don't need to be a Jewish Christian or even a non-Christian Jew to get this, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Laws are for the living. And this is pretty basic, isn't it? Right After you die, the law no longer has any effect on you. Although there are some people who... Uh, seem to maybe want it to apply even after death. I wonder if there's any Hollywood contracts that include like reincarnation or, you know, if you, if you decide to be frozen and, and reawakened later on or your consciousness uploaded to the internet or whatever. But, you know, there, there's an example. In 897, there was something called the Cadaver Synod. So Pope, what was his name? Formosus. Pope Formosus had been a rather politically engaged pope, and most folks didn't like him. So after he died, the next guys exhumed his body, put his bones back in his papal robes, 
put him on trial, convicted him, and excommunicated him after he was dead. So uh, these folks apparently didn't grasp this concept that he don't care anymore at this point. I don't know if they, they thought that he was in heaven and was going to somehow get like sucked out of heaven back down to hell or something, but that's called being bitter and vindictive is what that is. But they missed the point. Laws are for the living. And he gives an example here, and that's what verses 2 and 3 provide us. The example of marriage. He says, if a woman is married, she leaves her husband and goes after another man. She's an adulteress because she has made a commitment to be with her husband for ever and ever, right? Till death do us part. And if you break that vow, you're an adulteress. However, if her husband dies and she's remarried, it would be so unfair to call her an adulteress. You're being unfaithful to your husband. My husband is dead. Well, you made a vow. Yeah, and the vow was till death do us part. And he died, so we parted. <laughs> death broke the law's hold over her. This is important to get here, that, that when death enters the scene, it, it breaks whatever ties and binds are, are, are built between two people. And, you know, this is not to say, as, as some will, that, well, therefore, uh, a man can leave his wife and, and he can, and that's not adultery. Yeah, it absolutely is adultery. He's just using the example of the woman because why not? It, it's the same point. But uh, lots of folks that want to accuse the Bible of all sorts of things. And it's just a sub point here, but I am going to make this in passing, that the Bible regards marriage as a lifelong commitment. And this passage is really not, not making that point, although it kind of assumes it to make the point, doesn't it? That when you get married, that's forever. And Jesus said in Mark 10, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, are there instances where the Bible permits, permits is an important word, not encourages, permits divorce and where there is not some sort of sin involved? Yes, there absolutely is. And especially regarding uh, sexual immorality. And Paul gives the example in 1 Corinthians 7, where a believing wife is abandoned by her unbelieving husband, that she can remarry and that there is no, there's no fault there. Uh, it's just important to know that God intends marriage to be forever. And that when you get married, that's it. And is there grace and forgiveness to be had? Yes. But we need to remember, our culture is very free and flippant with the divorce thing. And in the church, we don't do that. When we get married, we stay married. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much all I have to say about that today. But let's move on. Will you turn with me to Matthew 22? This is a great little section of scripture where Jesus makes the same point and actually helps illustrate the point that we're making today in Romans chapter 7. Matthew 22, I'm going to read a, a longish section from verse 23 down to verse 33. This is the last week of Jesus' life. When he is in the temple, he's come in on Palm Sunday, riding on the donkey, he's, he's cleansed the temple, and the next day all the religious leaders came to him, and they're trying to get him to say something uh, that's going to embarrass him in front of the people. And the Sadducees come up, Verse 23, the same day Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. That's absolutely true. It's called leveret marriage. It's in the Bible. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So too, the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. This is the kind of sarcastic question that people ask on the internet an awful lot. They're not really looking for an answer. They're just trying to make stumble and stammer and, and look silly. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong. 
because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus was a fearless man, wasn't he? For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So this passage illustrates this very clearly here. What's the point that Paul is making? Laws are for the living. And Jesus, without trying to make that point exactly, again, sort of assumes it. That, well, when, she, when she's resurrected, then whose husband will she be? Jesus says the law of marriage will have been broken at that point because death has taken place. And laws are for the living, not for the dead. Death breaks the hold of the law. And those who are resurrected will not be bound by the law. Do you see that? That's the other thing that's embedded in what Jesus said. That in the resurrection, you're not bound to that old covenant. Because if you're resurrected, you're under the new covenant. So we know this real basic principle that laws are for the living. We're like, okay, I get that. I'm down with that. Well, Paul moves on to explain that this principle applies to us in the church, not just to some theoretical married couple. Verse 4, Likewise, my brothers... You also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. So likewise, you also. So he says what just applied in that story applies to you too because you have died with Christ. That was the whole point of the last chapter and that's one of the reasons I love Romans 6 so much. That just as Christ has died, we have died. That when you are baptized, you identified with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That a spiritual transformation happens in that moment where the Lord makes you pass from death to life. It's called regeneration, where God wakes up your soul. It's like when you, you, what do you call those things? A defibrillator that shocks your heart and gets it beating again. That's what the Holy Spirit does for you spiritually when you are saved. You die with Christ, and you raise to walk in newness of life. So then, if you are already dead, the law no longer applies to you. Do you follow Paul's train of thought here? If laws are for the living, and you've already died and risen from the dead in Christ, the law doesn't apply to you. You say, well, I'm still alive. Well, so was the woman in the resurrection that Jesus was talking about back in Matthew. But the law can no longer touch her. I cannot stress how important it is for us to get this. You are not under the law. You are under grace. Not under law. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means that we are not under the law. And there's no weird, like, behind-the-scenes meaning to not under the law that secretly means under the law. Haven't you ever talked to folks like that? Yes, we're not under the law. Now, what that means is you need to keep most of it still. No, no, no. Uh, this is actually, this is the only agreed upon dispensational transition in Scripture. Now, we in our eschatology and the way we look at Scripture, we're what's called dispensational. We believe there have been then epochs or eras where God has worked with people and that those, there have been points of transition. For example, when God introduced the law, well, that was a change in dispensation then. But now that the law has ended, it's transitioned to the age of grace. And in fact, the other side of that argument, which is called covenant theology, th this is the one point we can all agree on. That it used to be law and now there's no more law. It used to be law, but now it's grace. 
And I'm going to read three passages from Scripture. I had to cut a whole bunch of them because there's so many. The New Testament hammers this again and again and again. And it needed to because all of the Bible up to this point has been God giving the law and then judging Israel for not keeping the law. Then Jesus showed up and he's doing weird things with the law. He's not keeping it like everybody else is. And he's talking about things that go beyond the law and yet don't quite measure up to the law. So what is all this? Well, let's look at Galatians 3. Paul says, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And who's our guardian? The law. So now that Christ has come, we are no longer under the law. For in Jesus Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. Paul called us prisoners, captives under the law, waiting until the day when Christ would come and then we could be released. And that's exactly what's happened. In Galatians is Paul at his, at his most scrappy. So he says it as, as clearly as you can get. What about Hebrews? A lot of people think Paul wrote Hebrews. Maybe not, but it makes a similar point. Hebrews 7, 18 and 19. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. I love the ESV there. The weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. So what's the, what's the weak, useless commandment? The law. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. That's the whole book of Hebrews, man, is how inferior the old covenant is to Jesus Christ and the new covenant. He calls it weak and useless, and that's why it's been set aside. Acts 15, this is the big moment. This was the pivot point in the church where they were like, all right, Gentiles are getting saved. What are we going to do? People started going around behind Paul and saying, oh, Paul gave you the gospel, but don't forget, you've got to be circumcised and keep the Sabbath and keep the food laws and obey this, this Torah. And there's a big conflict about it. So they all came to Jerusalem and they had a, the first church council. And Peter said this, and this was the motion that, that carried the day. He said, to those that were trying to keep, make the Gentiles keep the law? He said, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. He says, guys, we can't go back out and start making them keep the law. We can't even keep the law. And James came up with a great solution. He said, all right, salvation's by grace, but let, let's give them just a couple things to make sure that, that we can still have fellowship between Jews and Gentiles. So, over and over again, there are few things more certain in the New Testament that Christians are not to keep the law of Moses. Period. And we, and we go on to explain exactly what this means. We'll talk about, about the role that the law does play in our lives still. But you've got to grasp up front that you know you are not under the law. And that when weird people come knocking on your door or accosting you in the street and try to put a trip on you by saying, well, doesn't the Bible say in Deuteronomy, Leviticus, whatever, and don't you believe the Bible? You got to answer, yes, I believe the whole Bible. The Bible, it was an unfolding story and I'm living at this point of the story where I don't have to keep that law anymore. God never in the Bible, never compelled a Gentile to keep the law. Least of all, after Jesus died on the cross. 
You need to not fall prey to those who want to split hairs. And this is the question I often get. Well, how much of the law? I mean, not all of it. How much? None of it, Christian. None. Zero. It's not your standard anymore. And we say, well, wait a minute. The law said thou shalt not kill. Yeah, but that was true before the law, wasn't it? And listen, this, this is a helpful instructional point, but we've got to know that this is not doctrine. Folks want to say things like, well, we keep the moral law, but not the ceremonial law. Have you heard of that one? The Bible does not make that distinction. The Bible does not make that distinction. Obeying your father and mother was just as much a part of the law as having the tassels on your robe. Do you know what God judged Israel for when he exiled them? Do you know what it was for? For not keeping the Sabbath year. It wasn't for all the other stuff. That was part of it. But the big thing was God goes, you didn't let the land lie fallow every seven years. We go, what? That? Really? Yes. Because it's all one. What does it say in James? If you fall short in one point of the law, you've lost all of it. And Paul said in Galatians, if you want to take on part of the law, you better take on the whole thing. And he warns them against it because he says, you can't keep it. So stay away from that. How much? None. No, I don't believe we have to keep the law. Well, we have to keep the moral aspects of the law. No, no, no. We don't keep the law. I don't even like talking about it in those terms. Because it's so easy then to fall into somebody that comes and, well, the, you, you believe the Ten Commandments, don't you? Oh, absolutely. Well, the Ten Commandments says to keep the Sabbath. And here's what the Bible says about the Sabbath. So you've got to keep the Sabbath in that way. Now, all of a sudden, you're trapped. You go, I love the Ten Commandments, but that is not my standard for life and behavior. <gasps> don't, you, don't you believe the Bible? Yeah, but all of it. <laughs> all of it from start to finish. Don't. Fall for this. You are not under the law. I think I've said it enough times. Hopefully I've made the point here. So then what is our relationship to God then? If we're not in this relationship with the Lord through the law, what is our relationship like? Well, in verse 4, Paul picks up that metaphor he was using in verses 2 and 3 and describes your relationship with Christ as a marriage. So you also, you also died to the law so that you may belong to another. Just as that woman in verses 2 and 3, when her husband died, was able to belong to another. This is marital language that Paul uses here. We belong to Jesus Christ as his bride. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 5. It's just a little bit to your right here. Ephesians chapter 5. I, I tried to pick a, a section of this passage to read. Couldn't. It's also good. Because this is the passage on on this subject. And we're doing all right on time. So we're going to read the whole thing. Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. Talking about belonging to Christ. What does our new relationship to God look like under the new covenant? Well, let's read this. Starting in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. He's already using this metaphor that the church is the bride of Christ. He's going to continue, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Are you seeing this this big picture that Paul is laying out here? 
Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So Paul's giving instructions about marriage, about the roles of the husband and the wife. And we, especially in this day and age, say, why? Why should I love her? She doesn't deserve it. Haven't you seen how she talks to me? Don't you know what she says to her friends about me? Don't you know that she tries to keep the children away and all this stuff? I'm not going to love her until she starts respecting me. You've got to submit to and love your husband. I'm not submitting to him. Don't you know what he's like? Don't you know the, thing, the stupid things he tries to do? If I submitted to that, we would have driven right into a ditch. And he doesn't earn my respect. The way he comes home and the way he acts and he takes his job out on all of us. I'm not respecting him until he starts loving me more. And you say, why did God give us that instruction? Because your marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. That marriage, even from the very beginning when God brought Adam and Eve together, was to be a living parable of the relationship that Christ and the church would have with one another. Why would you submit to that man? Because the church is in submission to Jesus Christ. Why would you love that woman? Because Jesus Christ loved me so much, he died on the cross for me. You are the bride of Christ. We are collectively the bride of Christ. There's a passage in Hosea chapter 2, verse 16, where the Lord prophesied. He said, the day is coming where you will no longer call me my Baal, which means my Lord. You will call me my husband. The Lord says, I'm going to change our relationship from being one of, of master and servant to one of husband and wife. Isn't that wonderful? That's Old Testament. Matthew 25 gives us the picture of Jesus Christ returning with his bride. That's a picture of the second coming of Christ. Song of Solomon 2 verse 4 says his banner over us is love. And there's always really boring people that want to jump in and say things like, well, Song of Solomon isn't about Christ and the church. It's about a real marriage. Yes, but we just read in Ephesians that a real marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. So can you push it too far? Sure, but... His banner over me is love. He's brought me in to seat at his banqueting table. There's a picture to be learned from your marriage and every marriage, and especially the ideal marriage as portrayed in Song of Solomon as a picture of Christ and the church. That's your relationship. And is that not a greater motivation to obey God than the law? Do this because you have to. Do it because you love him so much and because he loves you. You are loved by the Lord. Don't you know that? He says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. He gave everything to sanctify you and clean you up and present you to himself as a pure bride. And love should be your response. What do we think of couples where one partner is very clearly doing all the work and putting forth all the effort and the other one just kind of makes them earn it? We don't think much of that, do we? We say, oh, that's not right. You ought to show a little more love to her. Look at her. She's, she's fawning all over you, and you're just sitting there stoic. Or look, look at the way that man is caring for you. Why are you punishing him of something he did six weeks ago? That's ridiculous. Well, how much more for you and Jesus Christ? He's poured out all this love for you. Are you going to sit there and, like, evaluate his love for you? Well, God, you came through last time, but, I mean, hey, it's a new day. What have you done for me lately, Jesus? How dare we? This is the mystery. Just as Christ died and rose again, 
We are dead to the law, and yet we live. And that new life is so much better because your relationship to God, he's no longer the judge, he's your bridegroom. And when you go into heaven, it's going to be like that wedding day where the doors open up and there comes the bride dressed in that beautiful, pure, clean white dress. And there's her, her husband-to-be waiting for her. That's what your entrance into heaven is going to be like. And you might say, but I'm not pure. I'm not clean. I'm not holy. But Jesus has made you holy. He's washed that white dress clean in his own blood. And now you can stand before the Lord acceptable and pure and holy. Isn't that awesome? We live to bear fruit for God, as he says. We learned that in Romans chapter 6. We're going to continue to discuss that, that we live life to obey him because we are his bride in Christ Jesus. Verses 5 and 6. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And I already said that written code is the letter. The new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So he's already said, look, you're not under the law because you've died with Christ and you've raised a walk in newness of life, so it doesn't apply to you. He's also going to show us later on, and I'm not going to get into this point so much today because next week and the following are all about this. But the law has served its purpose. The law's point was to draw us to Christ, to show us, as he did in Romans chapter 2, that you need salvation. I'm going to give you a list of rules to follow. You can't keep them exactly. That's why you need my salvation. But he's also letting us know here, chapter 6, 7, and 8 are all about practical righteousness, sanctification. That the law was an inadequate way to secure good behavior. Because this is the concern, right? If there's no law, doesn't that mean we can do whatever we want and we can sin? Paul, you're teaching people to be, be wicked and, and licentious. And Paul goes, well, the law was worse. <laughs> the law couldn't do that. The law couldn't make you righteous. It could just tell you what to do. It doesn't help anything. And he's going to explain this in detail throughout Romans chapter 7 as how the law stimulates passion. Suffice it to say that rules often spark curiosity, don't they? Tell a little kid, don't do that. What do they say? Why? Why? <laughs> and you go, oh no, now things are worse. You know, some of the things that uh, you, you teach kids in school, we we're going to keep them off of drugs, so let's tell them all about drugs. And they go, well, wait a minute, what's this all about? <laughs> and they all go out and they, they go pursue that, and they check those things out. That's what rules do. Is it a bad rule? No, it's a good rule. Don't do drugs but I'm sinful, and you tell me not to do something, I'm going to go see why not. It, just like Eve in the garden, right? One rule. Eat every tree, just not this one. And where is she in the next scene? Staring up at that tree. Why not, do you think? And then here comes the serpent. I'll tell you why, because God's trying to keep something from you. And it aroused that passion, and it and led to sin, and in, which, of course, led to death. So now, because the law was insufficient to generate righteousness, it could hold up a standard, but it couldn't make you righteous. He very plainly says, we are released from the law. In case you needed another very plain statement in the Bible, we are released. We've died to it. Is that clear enough? I hope we all get this. For you and me, the law is not our standard of behavior. And that means that the foolish things that folks want to focus on, like Sabbaths and food laws and holidays, have no bearing on your life. 
This is the Seventh-day Adventist church argues that the Sabbath day is still holy and worshiping on Sunday is the mark of the beast. I'm not exaggerating. That is exactly right. There was, there was a big billboard in Lynchburg that we would drive by and it said, said what is it? Worship on the Lord's day, Saturday. And then there's a few miles down, there's another one that said, don't take the mark of the beast, Sunday worship. Like for real. So where do you get that from? Well, if you're still under the law, then that, that Sabbath rule is a pretty big deal. The food laws and the holidays. I've told y'all before about this weird culty group that found me one time. And they were, they were telling me, first of all, about God's wife. And that God has, a, has a, br- a wife. And, you know, unto us a child is born. And us can only mean a mother and father. We know God's the father. So there must be a goddess that we have to worship too. So right off the bat, this was weird. But as we went on, it turns out they're like, and you also need to keep the food laws and keep the festivals. And I was like, you don't keep the festivals. Yeah, we do. I said, did you keep the Feast of Tabernacles? Yes, we did. We kept it this year. I said, so you went to Jerusalem and built a little hut and lived in it for seven days? Well, no, those are the rules of man. Those aren't the rules of God. Well, what did you do? We, we had communion. Okay, well, you're not keeping the festival. You're, this is a weird legalistic thing that it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. You know, there have been people that would go through the seminary when I was in Bible college, and there's always some guy that was like trying out this weird new legalism. And he's like, you know, the Bible says we really shouldn't be eating all these things. And I remember there's one guy that only ate apples. Because I, I don't know what his deal was, but he would try to justify his weird behavior by an appeal to the law. Which is like, but we're not under the law. He goes, well, but I mean, it's still a good example for us to follow. And let me put it this way. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let nobody judge you in any of that stuff. Is it still? Most people that insist on those things, they don't keep them themselves. You know, there, there was a group in, in Lynchburg, and there were some guys that had left our church and gone there, and they started this, this thing. It was called like the Hebraic Christian Fellowship of whatever, whatever. And they would get together, and they would talk about how every other church was, you know, not keeping the law properly. And they would li- all worship on Saturday and light a candle because that's part of it somehow. And then they'd all get in their car, and they'd drive, and they you know, get a biscuit from you know, Biscuitville. And now they've got a, they're eating bacon, and they're starting fires, and they're breaking all these other Sabbath laws. And you ask them about that. Oh, we don't have to keep those, just the ones that we like. It's so, no one really keeps this stuff. In fact, the Bible says you can't keep this stuff. Very often, maybe not always, but in my experience, very often the people that get obsessed with that kind of stuff have some very serious sin issues elsewhere in their life. And the new covenant way has become just too hard for them to walk, so they look for something easy to glom onto. It's easy to worship on Saturday. That's easy. And now I'm saved. Well, that's not what the Bible says. It's much harder to love your wife or submit to your husband, for example. But those things have no bearing on your life. Don't let people make you feel convicted when they come knocking on your door or talking to you or posting weird things on Facebook. And, you know. But the question becomes, okay, then, if I'm not keeping the law, then how do I know what's right and wrong? Very good question. But let me use a very Paulish line of argument here. Right and wrong predate the law. There was no such thing as like, you can do whatever you want, and then God gave the law. Now we know what's right. No, there was always right and wrong. God punished Sodom before the law came because they were sinful. 
Because righteousness, holiness, right and wrong are found in the character of God. So he's always existed, which means right and wrong have always existed. So the law is not the standard of righteousness. God is the standard of righteousness. Abraham didn't have the law. Isaac didn't have the law. Jacob didn't have the law. Joseph didn't have the law. So the law is only useful to us as it properly expresses the moral standards of God. This is important to know. Jesus demonstrated when he was on the earth that the law was both too strict and too lax. It was too strict in areas like the Sabbath, where people were like, oh, you can't scoot back in your chair because you might accidentally plow a furrow in your dirt floor and you've been plowing on the Sabbath. And Jesus was like, you know, if your donkey fell in a well, you'd pull the donkey out. So I don't want to hear this from you. Since the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, right? So the Sabbath is supposed to be a blessing and you've turned it into a curse. It's supposed to be a divine day off and you've made it into this thing with all these weird rules. But it also was too lax. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you that if you are angry with your brother without a cause, you've already committed murder. There are folks that say, well, I can dance on the rules. If it's a matter of rules, I'm good at keeping rules. And Jesus goes, but your heart stinks. So you're not really keeping the law. And so that leaves us with our question then. Okay, what, what standard do we follow then? First of all, it's the wrong idea to start thinking about a standard, like you're looking for a new law to replace the old one. He says, we serve in the new way of the spirit with a capital S and not in the old way of the letter. Jeremiah 31, the Lord said, on that day, I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. Not like the old one. Well, I will cause you to obey me. In Ezekiel 36, he says, I'm going to take that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and put my spirit within you. The Lord promised one day I'm going to make a new covenant where it's not going to be external. Righteousness will be internal because I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit that will lead you in all these things. And that is how we walk in righteousness. By the way, verses four through six, there is a Trinitarian formula. Do you see that here? Verse four, you've died to the law through the body of Christ that you may bear fruit for God. Verse six, walking in the new way of the spirit. Father, son, Holy Spirit. This, I like to call those out when you see them because it's everywhere. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. So the new way of the spirit. When you were saved, the Holy Spirit of God came and indwelt you. Romans 8 is going to say, if that didn't happen, you ain't saved. So it did happen. His power also will come upon you in what we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You are regenerated by the Spirit. That happened in John 21 when the, Jesus breathed on the disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. But then in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit came upon them in power to fulfill the mission, to live out what God had called them to do. That's the Holy Spirit. He dwells within you. He's like a fire that's burning on the altar of your heart. And every now and then that fire, fire blazes up to help you do what you need to do in the moment. That indwelling, personal, powerful presence is your new guide to serve the Lord in holiness. Amen. And all of a sudden, this has gone out of the realm of ethics and into the realm of spirituality, which is where it needs to be. The world hears that and goes, okay, well, that doesn't work for me. Uh, it, exactly, it doesn't. You need to be saved. You must be born again. Jesus promised that blessing in John chapter 7. Remember what he said? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. I'll give him rivers of living water pouring out of his heart. He said this was to speak of the Holy Spirit who had not yet come, but because we're post-Pentecost, he has come. So rivers of living water in your heart. And you know, Paul used to double check with people to make sure they had received the Holy Spirit. 
Acts 19, verse 2, he's talking to some disciples and he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? There's all kinds of debate. Were these Christians, were they not? It, it really, that's not the point today. The point is Paul asked that question when he met people that he thought might be saved. Did you receive the Holy Spirit? It was important for them. You read the book of Acts, and we have. We studied it all the way through together. Holy Spirit is a character in the story. He's not just a, a presence floating somewhere. It'll say things like, the Holy Spirit said, the Holy Spirit prevented, the Holy Spirit sent, the Holy Spirit transported. He's active in the story, and we're living in that same age and that same dispensation today. If you don't have the Holy Spirit's power in your life, you need to stop everything and seek his face. So I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he rose from the dead, and I've committed my life to him. That means the Holy Spirit is there in you. When was the last time you had an experience with the Spirit of God? Well, I don't believe we should chase experience. Enough with that already. This is God we're talking about here. If Moses was able to pray, Lord, show me your glory. And God goes, I'll show you as much as I can. If I show you too much, you'll die. God does not have a problem with you seeking his face. Over and over in the book of Acts. And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. And Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. When's the last time you were filled with the Holy Spirit? When's the last time you stepped out to do something where you needed the filling of the Holy Spirit? When's the last time you tried to share the gospel with your neighbor? I can't share with him. He's angry and he's mad and I don't know what to say. Well, that's why you need the filling of the Holy Spirit. When's the last time you encountered God in that way? When's the last time you were praying and the Lord just laid you out on the floor, weeping and crying out before the Lord, so overwhelmed with his majesty and his power and his love and his joy for you? When is the last time that song you've heard a million times was playing and all of a sudden you just knew beyond the shadow of a doubt, you knew that you knew that you knew that you were saved and loved and sin just began to fall off of you like the husk of an old, of an old bug when it starts to lose its old skin. You know what I'm talking about? You ever find those little cicada things on the trees? When they molt, that's what the Spirit does. He goes, you know, you've been growing, this is great. It's time to get rid of all that old stuff. When's the last time that happened for you? If it hasn't happened, what do you do? Jesus said, how much more will a good father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? But you know, the Holy Spirit is a person. He's not a force. You don't call upon the Spirit and here he comes. No, the Holy Spirit's a person. He wants to talk to you. And you know what he'll do? He'll make you chase him. Lord, I want to be filled. He goes, good. Let's pray for a few days and see, and then I'll fill you up. Oh, I don't really have time for that. He goes, well, then there you go. He's not going to respond to your, your schedule, your timetable. This is the God of the universe. But he wants to speak to you. And very often if he wants to speak to you and he can't get your attention, he'll start doing things to get your attention. He'll smack you upside the head every once in a while. Oh, I need to pray. Oh, God, help me with this situation. Lord goes, I'm glad you're here. It's been a while since we talked. My dad used to do this when I was in high school. I had, my, I had a car. I had friends. And I used to be out all the time and, you know, drop my bag off. All right, Dad, I'm going out. I'm going to be with a friend. Hey, hey, come up here. I'm going out with Stephen and Matt. No, you've got to get up here. Come on. What is it, Dad? What? Just sit down. What is it, Dad? And he goes, how you doing, Tyler? <laughs> dad, no, just tell me how you're doing. That's what the Spirit wants to do with you. Don't just show up when you need something. Lord, I need to borrow the car. Lord, I need some money. Lord, help me. I'm, I'm trapped. You've got to bail me out of jail. Talk to the Spirit. Talk to the Lord. He's there for you. Because if you don't have the Spirit, you're reduced to rebuilding the rules. Like the Pharisees. They didn't know God. So what do they do? They learned the traditions. Jesus knew God. And the traditions had no hold over him. John the Baptist knew God. And the traditions had no hold over him. They were impressed with both of them. 
for a while. Then they killed them both. This is why Christianity is useful for society in terms of our Judeo-Christian ethic. But you know what? Judeo-Christian ethic is not a biblical term. We don't have an ethic. We have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling inside of us. Why do Christians do all these righteous things? Because God's helping us. God's helping us. This is how murderers get turned around and become evangelists. This is why, in another sense, the, the righteousness of the Christian faith is useless for those who do not believe. Because they don't have the resurrection power to be holy. But I am going to lay this out. There, there are seven ways that the New Testament gives us that, that help us to walk in the Holy Spirit's power and to help us to walk in that new way. So it's not that the, the law, the things that are written down are not good for us, but you've got to understand that they're, they're secondary. So let's look at these seven things very quickly. Number one, the Bible. The Word is still your standard, written for our instruction, and the Bible lays out moral principles that we should follow, though not as legalists. You know, we say things like, well, the Bible says not to lie, but Rahab lied when the spies were on her roof. Was she, no, that's a legalistic way of looking at lying, my friend. Is it not a greater thing to be loving and protect the messengers of God that are coming to bring the people into the promised land? That's the only thing, only kind of decision you can make if you are full of the Spirit of God. And the New Testament confirms much of what the Old Testament said. So look to it. Start there. That's your foundation. And move forward. Number two, the example of Jesus. What would Jesus do is a pretty good way to live your life. Just don't create Jesus in your own image where Jesus would do anything that you would do or your daddy would do or your favorite preacher would do. Walking in his steps is your standard. Not impossible. It's actually expected by the Holy Spirit. The Lord said, be holy for I am holy. Number three, the Bible will give us the principles to follow, the core foundational principles, like Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount, right? You've heard it was said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you that if you look with lust upon a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So that's how Jesus teaches us right and wrong. He says, here's the rule, but let's get to what's behind the rule. You know, we look at that lying example. Okay, yeah, we're not supposed to lie. Why? We're supposed to fill the world with truth. We're supposed to fill the world with what is right and what is godly. So, you know, when that situation came up, it was a more righteous thing to say, yeah, they ran off a while ago. So don't just follow the letter of the law, but so to speak, the spirit of the law. If you're not following the letter of the law, but you are following the spirit of the law, you're okay. But if you're following the letter, but not the spirit, Jesus says that you're condemned. Number four, love. The Bible repeatedly calls what we do as Christians the law of love. Several times in the New Testament, it says, love fulfills the law. The two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you're doing that, you're going to be all right. If you can say that everything I've done has been 100% in godly, biblical, Christ-like love, you're not going to sin. Number five is liberty. This is the other thing that the law that we have as Christians, so to speak, is now called. The law of liberty. If you are finding yourself enslaved to the opinions of other people or to certain cultural standards or to certain things that have nothing to do with the Bible or Jesus, you're not walking in biblical holiness. You might say, oh, I'm doing really good at this. Okay, but does the Bible say anything about that? Well, I just don't think we should do it. Well, okay, fine, but don't find yourself bound by those things. Number six, here's another one, nature. The New Testament will use nature as a teacher of how we are to behave. Because God created us, the way he created us was good before sin entered the world. 
Which is why the Bible says things like, is it not wrong for two men to lie together or two women? Because that's not how God created us. He says in, in 1 Corinthians that it's against nature for a man to have long hair. That is to say, for a man to dress and present like a woman or vice versa. Sometimes the Bible calls on nature, right? When he says, for Adam was created first and then Eve, therefore the wife shall be in submission to her husband. Increasingly important in this day and age, right? Number seven, the voice of God. The Holy Spirit will speak to you. And ultimately, it is to the Holy Spirit that you must be obedient. We begin as children following the rule book, but eventually you've got to grow until you can hear the voice of the author himself. Is that ever going to lead you to the place where you're going against what Scripture says? No, it's his book. But the Lord would rather you have a relationship where he speaks to you and you know his voice. And when he prompts you and says, don't go into Bithynia, I want you to go to Troas, that you're able to hear him and listen to him. When there's a revival happening at Peter's mother-in-law's house and the Lord says, I want you to go to the next town and preach there, you've got to be able to hear that voice. These principles, all of these seven, they illustrate how free and how strict it is to follow Jesus Christ by the Spirit. It's freeing in one sense because you're not bound by this list of stuff, but it also has its own severity. Because now you're not supposed just to do the rules, you're supposed to do the things behind the rules. To walk godly. Jesus Christ, I'm not going to have time to read it, but in Matthew 5, he says that, Do not think I've come to abolish the law. I've come to what? Fulfill the law. And Jesus did fulfill the law. Hebrews goes into great detail to explain how Christ fulfilled the law. But then he says in verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and Sadducees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So what is he saying? He says, I'm going to fulfill the law. And when I do that, don't think this somehow means you get a moral pass to do whatever you want. I expect you to live higher. I'm going to read a quote now from... John Chrysostom, who was one of the church fathers, and Chrysostom means golden mouth, who was considered the greatest preacher in the early church. And he has a commentary on Romans that I've been reading. And this, this is a long section. I did cut it down, but it, it really got to me. And I think it's a good place to start bringing us to a close here. Talking about this passage, as Christ, when he came, made the body more nimble for us through baptism, rousing it with the wing of the Spirit. That is, God regenerated you. He made you able to obey Him. And for this reason, the marks for the race, which they of old time had to run, are not the same as ours. Since then, the race was not so easy as it is now. He's saying, the old rules, the old standard, that's not our standard anymore because we have the power to live it out. It's easier now. And in all other duties, he gives us a longer ground to run over. That is, it's a longer race. It's a harder race. And if we do not obey, threatens us with hell. So showing that the things in question are not matters of free will offering for the combatants, as celibacy and poverty are, but are binding upon us absolutely to fulfill. What is he saying? He said, because the Holy Spirit has regenerated you, God holds you to a higher standard. It's a harder race. It's a longer race. It's not voluntary. It's not a free will offering. It's not like poverty, he says. You don't have to sell everything and be poor. You don't have to be celibate. That's optional. But righteousness is not optional for the Christian. The way of the cross is not nearly so burdensome as the rule book, but Jesus himself said it's a narrow road. 
It's a narrow road, and there are few that find it. What does that mean, few that find it? Almost everybody will miss it because it's a hard road. Leonard Ravenhill said, Christianity has not been weighed in the balance and found wanting. It's been tried, found difficult, and abandoned. David Wilkerson said that he loved Leonard Ravenhill, who if you've ever, he's got all kinds of, he's with the Lord now, all kinds of teachings online. If you ever want to feel like you don't pray enough, go, go watch a teaching from Leonard Ravenhill. But David Wilkerson said he loved this man because he says he is the one person I've met who is able to retain the call to holiness while understanding grace and avoiding legalism at the same time. And isn't that the standard for all of us? So much church of what we call being righteous is so stuffy and petty. It's just the things that we like and we can kind of sort of find a biblical justification for it. So that becomes the most important thing. And that's what we enforce on people. And that's what we rant about online. It's cultural, not Christian. So much of the things that we take a godly biblical stand on and apply Bible verses to have nothing to do with Jesus. And we call it righteous. This is why we can be arrogant snobs about righteousness. Isn't that weird? Doesn't it, doesn't it like set off alarm bells to think that we can be arrogant and prideful toward people because they're not as holy as we are? That's a red flag that you're not holy at all. You're like that Pharisee that stood in the temple and said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not like this tax collector over here or this Democrat over here or this communist over here or, or, or this Catholic over here. God, I'm just better than everybody. Ridiculous. The actual strictures of Christianity, the actual rules are so simple that you can trip right over them. Love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, that's easy. Oh, no, it's not. They are infinitely harder than the outward acts that we favor so much. And that's where your attention should go, Christian. It's easy. It's easy and cheap to rail against your enemy's flaws. Look at what they're doing. Look at those Ninevites. Look at the way they sin. Look at those godless people ruining our country. It makes me so angry. They're defiling God and they're calling down wrath from heaven. God, get them, Lord. You know it's much harder? To love those people. Jesus said, love your enemies. Get brokenhearted for your enemies. Bless those who curse you. That's hard. To see those same people that make you so angry and instead of feeling your heart swell with anger, to feel it break within you and you're weeping in front of the TV screen now instead of yelling at it. That's hard. It's easy to hold your tongue when people are being angry at you. When people are backbiting you or gossiping about you or pushing you around. You know what's much harder? Letting go of bitterness. It's easy just to sit there and take it. So many of us do it. We'll sit there and take it when people are being awful to us. But inside there's this bitterness that's growing. And because we're being wronged, we feel justified in that bitterness. And we even take it to God. And we start saying, God, bless my bitterness. And the Lord says, I want you to forgive them. Well, if they ever ask and they have a dramatic repentance, no, God says, I want you to forgive them now. Just like I forgave you while you were yet a sinner. It's easy to tithe and serve in the church. It's easy. Money's easy. It's easy to show up and, and do your duty and do a job and say, oh, that's, that's my, yeah, that's all great. It's much harder to worship in spirit and in truth. That you walk in this place, not just to give your contribution and be part of what's going on, to come in and Glorify the Lord with your lips and your heart 
and your actions when you go home and your conversations in the car on the way back. You're not bound by the law of Moses. You've died to the law of Moses. But you've risen from the dead in Christ Jesus by the Spirit of God. It's time to walk in true righteousness, not walk in false security of the legalist or the false freedom of the libertine, but to walk in real righteous holiness. Come back to Christ. Learn from him. It's a yoke to carry, Jesus said, but it's light and it's easy and they're not burdensome. All these commandments are going to be good for you. But this is the stumbling block that so many can't get over. That walking in the new way of the spirit is in so many ways harder than following the written code. Because it involves commitment from the heart. It involves personal death and resurrection. And if you've not done that, it doesn't matter how many of these sermons you listen to. Doesn't matter how much money you give. Doesn't matter how many people you go out and tell that they need to read their Bibles. If you've not died and risen from the dead in your heart and been born again, you're going to be standing outside the gates of heaven screaming for mercy while you're dragged away. Can we as a church commit to being excited about righteousness and holiness? Not, not, the, not the easy stuff. Not the why would you wear a shirt like that in church stuff. Not that sort of thing, but the real, real thing. The real thing that says, you shouldn't talk about your father that way. you got to love your father. The righteousness that says, let's get on our knees and pray for these people. The righteousness that says, I hope that other church down the street grows faster and bigger than we do. Because who cares what happens to us? The kind of righteousness that says, Lord, I will spend and be spent for your sake. Lord, everything is mine. Take it all. What do you want to remove from me? Not how much can I get away with, but how much can I give up to get a little closer to Jesus Christ? You can't stop people like that who are set free from the law and are walking in true righteousness. The way of the Spirit.